Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in, in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Going back to verse 1, the main point of these past few chapters that we've been discussing that the author wrote here, the theme that's threaded throughout the past few chapters is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood. Uh, And the message that uh, the writer is wanting to convey to the Hebrew believers is this. And he says, and this is the main point, basically, in all these things that I've been telling you, we have such a high priest. We have that high priest. He's our high priest. Our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Now, you know, you go through the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, and and the, the details and the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, all those things that pertain to the Mosaic law, to the covenants, to the, to the ceremonial law, all those things are described in detail in those books. Some people like to kind of skip over those because it's, like it's like, you know, just it, you, you, your eyes glaze over. But I encourage you, don't do that. Read them. They're, they're good. All the materials used in the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings and all the design of them. I mean, God told Moses exactly this is how you're going to design it. This is how, this is what materials you're going to use. And this is where you're going to place it in the tabernacle. He laid it all out. But there's one thing that's missing from the tabernacle, and that was places for the priests to sit down. There was no benches or chairs or easy chairs or, or anything for the priests to sit down. When the priests were ministering in the tabernacle, and then, of course, later on in the temple, they were always standing when they were ministering in the tabernacle or in the temple. Why did they have to stand always? Well, their work inside the tabernacle was never done. They were always offering. They were always doing things in the tabernacle. And in reverence for God, they stood They didn't sit down before God's presence. You know, I was in the military, and some other people were in the military here. And and uh, you know, and I was an enlisted man. But you know, if you're if you're in a a room or in an area, and all of a sudden a high-ranking officer comes in, 
that room, you know what you do? You stand. <laughs> you stand at attention. And you stand at attention until they say at ease or they say, you know, you can go back to what you're doing or whatever. But to show respect and reverence for that higher ranking officer, man, everybody, boom, up to their feet and you stand there, you know. And, and this is the sense of the priest ministering before a holy, righteous God, the king of all the universe. They're not going to sit down in front of them. They're going to stand at attention. They're ministering there in the temple. You know, the rabbis in Jesus' day, they sat down to teach while their disciples stood up to listen. We kind of have it a little bit backwards here, you know. I, I should be, can you imagine coming into church and I have this nice comfy chair and I'm sitting here and there's no chairs in here. I said, you guys just, you can stand and listen to me. That, that, in that culture, that's what it was like. The rabbi sat down and the disciples stood. I always thought about that. You know, Jesus is teaching all these people, and he's feeding, the, I don't know if it was the 4,000 or the 5,000, and, and he tells his disciples, have them go sit down on the grass in groups of 50. It's because they were standing. They were standing listening to the rabbi, to Jesus' teaching. So, um, it, so you know, in their, they understood that in, the, in their culture. We, we don't really get a good grasp on that here, I don't think. Well, our priest, Jesus... He's not sitting in the tabernacle in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. Why? Well, his work is completed. Right? It's finished. In fact, Jesus even said that as he was dying on the cross. It is finished. The work's done. And, you know, we can go into this in more detail, but when we get later on in, in Hebrews, the writer's going to kind of expound on that, so I'm not going to expound on it right now. But his work is finished. Not only that, he is highly exalted, worthy of all glory, all honor, all power. And by the way, he's also equal with the Father. Uh, in Philippians 2, 9, 11, it says, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now because his work is finished. And he's glorified and exalted in heaven. Well, how does that impact me here? I mean, it's fine to have that understanding, but what does it mean to me? Well, the fact that he is resurrected and that he has ascended to heaven and that he sits at the right hand of the Father is proof that his sacrifice for your and my sin has been accepted by the Father. It's proof that it's been accepted. You know, the Levitical high priest when he went into the temple or when he went into the tabernacle, he wore the, or, the ephod over his chest. And that had the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only that, but he also had on his shoulders two stones on his shoulders that had the names of the of six on each side of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. And so as he went in to minister before the Lord, he bore on him, on his heart and on his shoulders, he bore the names of the people that he was representing as he went in before God in the temple. Well, our high priest bears your and my name on his heart. When he's there before the Father, he's representing us. He's advocating for us. He's interceding for us. It means he's praying for us. And Hebrews 6.20, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, tells us that Jesus is our forerunner. And his entrance into heaven is a pledge that we will also enter into heaven. 
How sure of a pledge do we have that we will also go to heaven? Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in His mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up together, and listen to this, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're seated with Christ in heaven. Wait a minute, I'm here. What do you mean? What are you talking about? You and I who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ were raised with him and were seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, you've got to understand this. God exists outside of time and space. You know, we, we have this concept of time before and after, and we have this concept of space. I'm here now. I'm not over there. Later on, I'll be over there if I walk over there. You know, we, have that, we have that sense of time and space. But God is outside of time and space. And God who sees the end from the beginning, it's a done deal for him. We're there. We're there already. We have a place assigned there, and within due time, you and I are going to take possession of our assigned place. We're seated with Christ. Now, we're not seated on the right hand of the Father. I have to tell you that. I hate to break, your, break that to you, but we're not. Because that place is reserved. It's a place of honor and it's reserved only for Jesus Christ. But that truth that you and I are raised and we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, it should affect how you and I live our lives right now. It should have an impact on us. Listen to what Paul also wrote in Colossians 3, verse 1. He says, if, and that word really means since, if or since, then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which uh, which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Since we're seated with Christ... Since we're raised with Him, man, why are, we, why are we focusing on the things of the earth? Why are we focusing on the things of the flesh? We need to set our minds on the things which are above. We are to be seeking eternal, you know, the eternal things and not the things of this life. And so therefore, he says, man, put to death those things in your life, those things of the flesh. Verse 3 continues here in Hebrews 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both sacrifice or both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You know, just... As the Levitical priests here on earth were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, your and my high priest, Jesus, also was appointed to offer something. And Paul in Ephesians 5.2 tells us Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering 
and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You know, I think about the priests that, that went into the tabernacle to offer. You know, they offered those gifts according to the law because that's what they were commanded to do. You were a priest. It wasn't because, you know, you didn't become a priest because you were more spiritual than anybody else. You just were from the tribe of Levi. And you were commanded to go in there and, and offer those sacrifices and gifts. And they did. But Jesus is a better high priest because he willingly gave himself. He, in love, offered himself as a gift and as a sacrifice for you and I. And Jesus and the Father accepted his gift as a sweet-smelling aroma. You know, the earthly priests, the tabernacle, the furnishings in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the ordinances, all the festivals of the Old Testament, all those things that were part of the Old Covenant, they were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. A copy. It's a sign suggestive of something, a representation of something, a figure of something. A, f- a shadow is an image that's cast by an object and represents the form of that object. What were the earthly priests, the tabernacle, the furnishings in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the ordinances, the festivals, a copy and a shadow of? I like what Paul says in Colossians two sixteen and 17. It says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, and that word substance means body, is Christ. In other words, all those things under the old covenant, they were a shadow. They were a shadow, but they were being cast by something, by an object. Well, what was the object? The object was Jesus Christ. He is the one that he's casting the shadow. And so all those things, those copies and shadows in the Old Testament, those things that represented things, they all represented Jesus Christ. That's why I love going through the Old Testament, you know, when, when we were going through, and we've, we've started in Genesis um, back when we, back when, and, and uh, we, uh, we just finished Daniel, and uh, we took a break to come back to the New Testament, but we've been kind of working our way through the Old Testament. I'm getting ready to do the, the minor prophets here pretty soon. I'm excited about that. But, you know, as you read through those things, it's, you can pretty much page after page, you know, as you go through that, you go, wow, I see Jesus in this. You know, even the coverings of the tabernacle, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but even the coverings over the tabernacle, the, the skins and the, the things that were laying over, it, it's all a picture of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Even the furniture in the, in the tabernacle, it was a, they all point to Jesus and what he did on the cross for you and I. They all point to Jesus. The body, Jesus is the body, body that's casting the shadow. And so here's the point, and I think this is really what the writer is trying to get across to these Hebrew believers, because you see, they were kind of wanting to get back into the ceremonial aspects of the law. They had been saved. I mean, Hebrews was written towards, you know, around 70 or so AD, I mean, close to the destruction of Jerusalem. I think it was a little bit before, obviously. But, you know, these, these Hebrew believers, they were still living in a, in, a, in a society steeped in Judaism, 
And so here they are, you know, they're, they're under the new covenant. But, you know, you, they grew up under that old covenant. They grew up under the traditions. Tradition. You know, they grew up on doing all those things that you do as, as you're a Jew. And as you do them, that you feel spiritual because you're doing spiritual things, you know. And so you have this. And so here's these new believers. And after a few decades, you know, it's like, oh, man, I, I kind of want to go back to some of that stuff. You know, I kind of, I kind of miss the ceremony and the pageantry, and I miss some of those things. And so they were trying to go back to that. And the writer of Hebrews is, why are you settling on a copy and a shadow? Why are you going back? The real thing is Jesus. You've discovered the real thing. Why go back? This really breaks my heart. I've known some believers who grew up as Protestant believers. They grew up in in a Christian church, and now they're going back to Catholicism. They weren't even raised in Catholicism. They're going back to Catholicism because they want to experience those those things. And all those things that they want to experience, it's copies and shadows. Jesus is the real thing. Why do we go back for anything else? Why settle for a copy or a shadow? How many of you here are Justin Bieber fans? I don't see any hands. Okay, well, maybe that's not a good example. But you, you know, sometimes you, you go to like, well, you, they used to have those record stores. You know what a record, how many of you know what a record is, an album? <laughs> okay, there's a few, few oldie moldies here. Um, okay, we, <laughs> you know, we had Tower Records when I was growing up and down in California. You know, you go into the record store and if they'd have a cardboard image of one of the rock stars, you know, it was like a picture, but it was made out of cardboard, it's flat, you know, one, one dimension, standing there, you know, by his, you know, whatever his albums and stuff, and so it's like, oh, cool, you know, and, uh, you know, there's sometimes like, man, it'd be cool to have that cardboard thing, I'd like to bring it home and put it in my room, it's just cool, you know, but could you imagine if you were like, like falling in love with this cardboard statue thing, and it's like that was your focus. You come home and you, oh, you start talking to it, and you, oh, you know, you, you put all your focus on this cardboard statue, Justin Bieber, for example, rather than the Bieb himself. You know, whatever. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> he's not my fan. <laughs> but but you understand, people get focused on the wrong thing. They get focused on the copy and the shadow. And, and it's just, it's absurd. We, we laugh at that because it's absurd. But yet, yet people that are going back to these things, people that are steeped in, the, in Judaism, for example, that's what they're doing. They're worshiping. They're focused on a shadow. They're focused. They're, 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 they're worshiping a copy rather than the real thing. Everything in the Old Testament was meant to turn the Jewish people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. That's all it was focused to. And once Jesus was there, that old covenant passed away because Jesus was introducing the new covenant, the covenant of grace. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes here, but that's what what, what the purpose was. So why settle for a copy or a shadow? Don't get hung up with copies or shadows because that's exactly what they are. They're not the real thing. The real thing is Jesus. Verse 6, he says, But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. A mediator. Who, what is a mediator? A mediator is someone who comes between two parties that are at odds with each other. Well, your and my sin has separated us 
from our Heavenly Father. We're at variance with God. We're enemies before Christ, before the cross, before Jesus you know, is part of our lives, before He comes into our heart. We're enemies to the cross. We're at odds with the, with the holy God because of our sin. And so Jesus Christ, who's both God and man, He becomes our mediator. He comes be- between man and God, and He brings you and I who have wandered far away back to God. It's not that God's wandered from us. We're the ones that have wandered from Him. God's just, the Father is just a prayer away from any one of us. He hasn't gone anywhere. We're the ones that have wandered from Him. And so the mediator brings you and I, man, some of us have gone really far away from God. And the mediator brings us back to Him, brings us close to God. And He satisfies God's justice with the sacrifice of Himself. And the Bible says that now, right now, he's in the presence of the Father advocating and interceding for us. And he's like our lawyer before, before the Father, representing us. We have the accuser, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who's accusing us night and day. And yet Jesus is our advocate saying, well, I paid the price for them. And the Father sees the blood of Jesus and he sees us as righteous. And then not only that, but Jesus, the mediator, he gives us the blessing of the Holy Spirit and he keeps and preserves us for salvation. I love what Philippians 1, six says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All of us are a work in project, a product, progress. Excuse me. The Father, the, the Lord is doing a work in our lives. And so he says here, Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. And why the need for a new covenant? Well, because there was a problem with the old covenant. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, there was a problem with the old covenant. You say, well, wait, God created the covenant. God, you know, God established the covenant. How could there be a problem with something that God established? Well, the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with man. Man did not keep God's covenant. The old covenant was conditional and was based on man's obedience. If God's people kept the covenant, they'd receive the blessings. If they broke God's covenant, they would receive the curses. 
Remember they had the mountain of blessing and cursing and the children of Israel? They, they, they basically recited this, the, the blessings and the curses there on, on that mountain. Well, the new covenant is not based on if you, it's based on I will, on what God did in Christ Jesus. It was not based on works, but it was based on grace. And, you know, the writer here, verses 8 through 12, this is actually a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And we just finished going through Jeremiah not too long ago in our, in our studies. Jeremiah, at the time, was speaking about the future to the nation of Judah. But get this, when Jeremiah was prophesying to the, to the nation of Judah, the nation of Judah, I mean, from the very, pretty much from the inception of the nation... I mean, God was just forming the nation of Israel in the wilderness. They were already turning their back on him. They were already breaking his covenant. From the very beginning, they were breaking his covenant. But all the way through, and they had times of reformation. There were times with Josiah, the King Josiah came and there was great reformation. Uh, during David's reign, there was some great, you know, there was a lot of great, good times. Hezekiah, different times. But by and large, the nation of Israel continued to break God's covenant and they broke it repeatedly. And Jeremiah, I mean, the, the, the ten northern tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel, they had already gone into captivity. They had already, uh, it, it, they had already gone so far for so long, and God gave them up to captivity by the Assyrians. But Judah, the, the, the two and a half northern, southern tribes, uh, the tribe of Judah, or the nation of Judah, I should say, um, God kept sending prophets back to them. Repent, repent, repent. And you know what they would do? They'd kill the prophets. They'd stone them. They'd mock them. They'd, they'd abuse them. They were so stubborn that they refused to repent. And so Jeremiah is called onto the scene. And this guy, uh, I would not want Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah prophesied for years and years and years and never had a single convert. And, and they mistreated him. They threw him in, the, in, a, in a well to leave him to die in the mud. You know, they, they misused him, they, they mocked him, they abused him. And for years and years and years, and I mean, even his wife died as part of, of, of testifying to the nation of Judah that God was calling them to repent of their sins. But by the time Jeremiah's on the scene, the nation, you know, they had broken God's covenant so much and for so long, and they had forsaken all those prophets that God had sent them, that Jeremiah's ministry was basically to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem and going into the Babylonian captivity. In fact, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Because, man, he cried over his people. He cried over the sins of his people. And I think of anybody that's in ministry, man, we need to weep over the sins of this world. It's, it's pretty easy to point fingers at people and say, you sinner, you know, you're doing that. And, and to, to, you know, to, to judge people. But man, we need to, our hearts need to be breaking for these people. Well, that's what Jeremiah did. The weeping prophet. You know what God told Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who was praying for his people? He said, stop praying. Stop praying. I've already made up my mind. They're going into captivity. And so, this is the person... Who wrote this? Let me read it back to you again. Um, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make in those days with the house of Israel after those uh, make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That was the message that Jeremiah gave. God already said, You're going into captivity. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to put my law in your hearts. Because, you know, the, the law was external to these guys. It was, it was written on tablets of stone. God says, I'm going to put it in your heart. I'm going to put it on your mind. I'm going to, I'm going to put my spirit on your spirit. That was spoken to people that had turned their back for so long and in so many different ways on God. And yet, God, who's rich in mercy and rich in grace, is announcing to them the coming of this new covenant. And this new covenant that he's announcing to these people, that's the covenant that you and I are under. We're under this new covenant. What would this new covenant look like? He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. That old covenant, like I said, it was, it was made up of external commandments written on tablets of stone. And under the new covenant, God's saying, I'm going to put my, uh, I'm going to put my will in your heart, I'm going to put my thoughts in your mind, and I'm going to put my spirit in your spirit. Philippians. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Under, under the new covenant, God's doing a work in both of in, in you and I, both of us. Well, there's more than two of us here, but you know what I mean. He's doing a work in us. We desire to do God's will. You know, and then Paul gets into it in Romans. Or, you know, we desire to do God's will, but our flesh, man, I tell you, it gets in the way so many times. But God, by His Spirit, gives us the will and the and the ability to do things for His good pleasure. Well, how would God accomplish this? How would He put His Word in our hearts? How would He put His will in our minds? By sending the Holy Spirit. He'd put His Spirit in ours. Under the new covenant, God declares, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Does that mean we don't need pastors anymore? What he's saying here, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a member of the priestly tribe of Levi or any other tribe. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor If you're educated or uneducated, if you're young, if you're old, if you're male or you're female, it doesn't matter. Under the new covenant, every person has his or her own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, That's why when you're sharing the gospel with people, you ask people if they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, because that's what the new covenant is. You know, it's interesting 
after Jesus ascended to heaven, you know, Pentecost arrived, right? The, the disciples, they, that Jesus said, wait until in Jerusalem, until you're, you know, you're, you're endued with power from on high. And so the, so the disciples, they were, they were waiting. There's about 120 of them, and they're just waiting in Jerusalem, waiting for the, for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they're on Pentecost Sunday, or I don't know if it was Sunday, but on Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit's poured out on those 120 disciples. And from there on, you know what the disciples were accused of? They were accused of turning the world upside down. Those guys that go everywhere and they turn the world upside down. And that's exactly what they did. They turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But think about this. They didn't have this letter to the Hebrews that you and I are reading right now. They didn't have that letter to the Hebrews. Why? It was written decades later. They didn't have any of the New uh, Testament letters that Paul wrote to all the different people or the Gospels. Why? Because they weren't written yet. They didn't even have the book of Acts to go and say, I wonder what the new church is supposed to look like. You know, I mean, we want to be a New Testament church, so let's read through the book of Acts. And, okay, this is what we, the, the, They didn't even have that. Why? Because they were living it. They were doing it. How did they turn the world upside down? They didn't have the scriptures, folks. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were led by the Holy Spirit. By the time the letters and the books of the New Testament were written, they just affirmed what the apostles and disciples were already doing because God was leading them. Because the Holy Spirit was speaking to them and guiding them. You know, we place a lot of emphasis on the Word of God at Calvary Chapel, and I think we we rightly so. I mean, God's Word is our standard. God's Word is our measure. We teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We teach the whole counsel of God, and, and we should. We want to be biblically correct. We want to be able to discern between truth and error. We want to be theologically right. But you see, there's a problem. We can get to the point where we're theologically right to the point where we're almost dead right. Where we're no longer leaning on the Holy Spirit. We're just, we're just focused on the Word. Those New Testament Christians, they didn't have the Word. And yet they turned their world upside down. Some Christians view the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. They leave out the Holy Spirit. Just like those early believers that turned the world upside down, you and I, we need to be filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting. When you read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, that's also that's an awesome study, too, by the way. Each letter... Of course, it was written specifically to a church that historically existed in the time. There were seven churches. Historically, they existed. But each letter is also written to a specific... Uh, excuse me. Each church that's represented in each of these letters is representative of a specific period of church history. That's a fascinating study when you dig into it. But also, each church is represented... The letters to those seven churches are representative of all churches in every age. Because you have lukewarm churches. You have churches that are theologically correct, but they've left their first love. You have the persecuted church. I mean, they, they all exist um, in, all, in every age. But also, those seven letters to the seven churches also represent every believer in the body of Christ. Because you have lukewarm believers. You have believers that are being persecuted right now. You have believers that are caught up in, 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 in traditions. I'm not going to get into that, but there's things that people are caught up in. 
So what I'm getting at, those seven letters to those seven churches, they not only apply to those specific churches, but they apply to every believer in every age uh, in every church. They apply to you and I this morning. And you know what's fascinating to me? Each of those seven letters written to seven churches, in other words, they're written to every, every believer that exists, basically. They apply to every believer. Every letter, Jesus' message to each church, ends with the same admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ Jesus for your salvation, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. The Bible teaches that He is a sign and a seal of your salvation. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. But let me ask you this rhetorically. When was the last time you heard the Spirit speaking to you and then you actually responded in obedience to His prompting? When was the last time it's like, I, I, I just feel the Lord's leading me to do this, and I'm going to go do that. Because the Lord's speaking to me, the Spirit's speaking to me. Only you and the Holy Spirit can answer that question. But we need to examine our hearts and say, man, when was the last time that I was led by the Spirit? We do need to treasure God's Word, the Bible. We do need to live our lives according to God's standard in the Bible. But we also need to be led or filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to, I was going to continue into Hebrews chapter 9, but I wanted to stop here in Hebrews chapter 8. Because I think this is just such an important point for us to really just dwell on. And I want to encourage each one of us this morning, if you feel like, man, you know what, I, I, I just haven't been really been walking by the Spirit. I, I've just been kind of walking, you know, in my flesh or... I just haven't felt like I've heard the Holy Spirit or I haven't been obedient to the Holy Spirit. He's been telling me something, but I haven't been obedient. I want to encourage you this morning to ask Jesus to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit, to fill you to overflowing. Now, when I start speaking about some of this, sometimes Christians get a little apprehensive with the subject of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's because they've seen the abuses. And uh, people don't want to get caught up in the flesh. They don't want to get caught up in false doctrine. But let, me, let me just say this, and I, and, I, and I believe this in the bottom of my heart. The Holy Spirit is never going to direct you to do something that the Scripture forbids. The Holy Spirit would never do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't make a person lose control of their actions. I've heard the people say, well, the Spirit came over me and I did this weird thing. Well, no, no, no. The Spirit doesn't take over you and, and, and you lose control. You're like you know, this, this robot. The Holy Spirit also doesn't change your voice to start speaking in King James English. You know, thus saith the Lord. You know, I mean, you don't start talking that way. The Holy Spirit will never give you a new revelation that contradicts Scripture. There's, there's not a new revelation because it's, it's all there in Scripture for you and I. And the Holy Spirit doesn't slay believers. The only people that are slain in the Bible that I've seen, and I was even looking for it because I'm like, I better make sure I'm saying this right, but the only people that are slain in the Bible... Is a whole, are enemies of God. I, I've never seen anybody where the Holy Spirit slays anybody. So, so, you know, these things that you and I see, that sometimes they go, you know, I, I don't want to be associated with that because that's, you know, it's just, it's weird. I don't want to be associated with that. Let me, let me just tell you, that's not what being filled with the Holy Spirit is, is all about. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is where He's leading you and He's guiding you to bring you into a place where you're bringing glory to God in your life. 
Isaiah 30, verse 21 says, Your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. That's what the Holy Spirit says. He prompts you and I to do things. And He's going to direct your and my steps in in a place where all of a sudden we'll be encountering divine appointments. The Holy Spirit loves doing that. Getting us into situations where we have divine appointments. And then He doesn't just leave you like, Yeah, let's put Him in there, see what He does. No. He gives you and I the words to say. He actually gives us the words to say uh, that minister perfectly to the situations that you and I encounter. That's what's being filled with and led by the Holy Spirit's all about. He'll comfort you, He's going to teach you, and He's going to counsel you. And as you and I are walking according to the Spirit, we're also not going to be fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. So it's like, it's like why wouldn't we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit? So I just want you to, to, as we stop here, uh, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, or Luke, or whoever's coming up, I guess. (laughs) Um, I I just want you to focus and think about that. When was the last time you were led by the Spirit? And you know, the thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is He doesn't judge, He doesn't condemn, He doesn't beat us over the head. But these are blessings that you and I have under this new covenant that we can take part of. We, we, can, we, can be, we, can, we can have the Holy Spirit of God just moving us and using us in ways that we couldn't even imagine if we'll only just surrender to Him.